This is Kevin Evans with the Chapter by Chapter Life class at Crossroads Assembly of God in Greenville. And we are uh, in the midst of studying Acts, and we wrapped up Chapter 18 last uh, class. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, has scampered on home, and uh, Apollos has ended up taking his place in the church that he started there. And so chapter 19 is, uh, I think there's a time skip in between 18 and 19, although that's not really recorded. I think Paul stayed home for a while and reported to his home church. And then chapter 19, Luke begins Paul's third missionary journey of which uh, Luke was evidently a part of his entourage. And so Paul left, but he was with at least three other men that we know of, and it may have been a larger uh, group than that. So uh, he leads a group of, um, of, of missionaries out, and his primary goal upon leaving home is the city of Ephesus. And he stops at several small churches, several of which he founded or his followers founded along the way. He checks on Christian con congregations, but uh, he is going to Ephesus where he settles down and preaches for, at this point, the longest period of time that he has anywhere. Uh, he puts some time and effort there. And as I was studying this, uh, the events keep calling times and places and events that make no sense to me whatsoever, and I had to keep backtracking, and everything leads to Ephesus is a weird town. And I kind of understand why Paul is focused on Ephesus. It makes a lot of sense, but it is it it was it was well. I think we need to talk about Ephesus before we read any verses. Otherwise, we get bogged down. So, here's the thing. I have a map. I didn't give you a map, but I have a map at the first page of Ephesians in my book of the city of Ephesus itself. You don't have a map. Okay, well, if you'll notice in the whole region, Ephesus is in Asia Minor, and it is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, there were ports that were within easy access of Ephesus, and lots of uh, places where people can, you know, where a ship can land, and there's going to be a lot of travel, and presumably fishing, and whatnot right there. Now, Ephesus itself is not right on the coast. There is a, I don't want to call it a mountainous region, it's more of a, a tall hill in between the coast and the city, and the city has another mountain on the other side, so it's kind of in a valley, and I, I, I don't know what this is, sorry. Let me, let me turn it off. I'm not getting it. I know. I used to sit past my I know. Someone on the school board. Okay, I, I'm never mind. Uh, okay, so um, Ephesus. It's in a valley, and uh, the ocean. Had, at, at one time, there was a bay that came around this hill and came into this little tributary, and there was a harbor, so you could sail directly into the town. So they have really good access to international shipping right there in Ephesus. And the Romans figured out that this was a really strategic location for them 
because it's, it's in a spot that's on the, on the way to everywhere in commerce. There are multiple roads that come through this valley because it's easy travel and you've got access to the ocean as well and uh, all these inroads in Asia. And uh, it, it, as a result, it's a very metropolitan city with people from all the, over the region living there all doing business in commerce mostly. Commerce. Yes, and, and, and that's what it was like when Rome got there. And when Rome got there, they thought, you know, this would be a pretty good location too, but because it's down a valley, that's really not a good military location for a city. Uh, they figured out a long time ago that it's easier to shoot down than to shoot up, and you don't want to be the guy down. So the Romans need to fortify the, the valley. So what they did is they built this big wall running down the hill that faced the ocean. So if anybody came in from the ocean and charged up the, the hill, there'd be this wall they couldn't get over. And you could fortify the wall and fight them from the top of the hill rather than down the valley. And so they fortified it. So it, it's not a walled city per se, but it's walled against attack from the ocean. And then you've got this mountain on the other side, which means that it's kind of protected that way too. They really only had to worry about the bay and the road going out the other way, which, which, which strengthened it. And Rome liked that just fine. And Mexico paid for it. Funny! <laughs> <laughs> so Rome moved in its various garrisons and they fortify this place and you know they're controlling all the commerce as it comes in and they make lots of money. So Rome does what Rome does, and they made it Roman. And they built a uh, racetrack, a really big racetrack for chariot racing and such, because that's what Romans really enjoy for entertainment. And uh, Romans like uh, stripping naked and working out, it seems. So... <laughs> There were three large gymnasiums that were all Romans because, well, you had a lot of soldiers there and they had to be, you know, tough guys. So, so you know, gyms, gyms are important. They had these big gyms. And then uh, they also built a Roman amphitheater because, partly because the, the layout uh, helped it. But uh, Romans really like a big amphitheater for their various presentations. Also, it's good for when the local magistrate comes in and decrees whatever Rome wants to decree, and they can gather everybody in town in one place and give them the new law, which happens a lot. And so they built this Colosseum that holds 25,000 people. That's so much better than our high school. Anyway, uh, it, it's, it's a big place. Um, the primary... If you're, if you're a, I, I want to say tourist, if you're a traveler and you come through uh, Ephesus, the place you need to see is the Temple of Artemis. It's been there a long time. And it's up on the mountain above that. I'm like, oh, good. There, there we go. Uh, and and uh, Artemis is the Greek name for Diana. The, the Romans came and renamed all the Greek gods. So uh, Luke is calling it by the Greek name. And then when you look at other references, they often refer to the Roman. And so you have this old temple that's up on the hill. And uh, the uh, Greeks said that that was to Artemis, and then the Romans changed it to Diana, and it was the major feature 
uh, in town. That was the tourist attraction, if you will. And uh, this temple was actually older than the Greeks because there was a, a statue of Artemis, but Artemis isn't depicted as she generally is in newer Artemis temples. They usually show her with a bow and stuff like that. This, they have a statue of what uh, they called in my classics class the mother goddess. It's this enormous, ugly, pregnant, fat woman with no face, and she has something like 30 breasts depicted in the nude. It's this big monstrous figure of, of fertility. Well, yeah, it's a very common uh, 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 idol that predates a lot of the classic mythology. It is a very primitive idol going back to the days of Noah or after, you know. And uh, so, and, and, and the, the local mythology in Ephesus is that this enormous statue of the mother goddess descended from heaven and was set down on top of this hill and they built the temple around it. That is the, the story. Because evidently the, the idol is, is, is embedded into bedrock. And so when the Romans came, they rebuilt this old temple in the picture of, a, uh, of, of Diana, following all of those traditions, whatever they are. And they, and they just declared this God to be Diana, which is how Romans tended to circumvent populations. So if you're worshiping some God, we're going to say, oh, well, that's our God too. So this is what her real name is. And, and by the way, you're worshiping a Roman God. You're all Romans now. That's how they, you know, kind of incorporated your, your culture. And so they built this, this, this temple around it. Yeah, well, you know, it's an old tradition, and we Americans have been doing it for quite some time as well. Uh, anyway, we'll discuss that later. That is, that was, that's a huge statement that, that really needs to be broken down to its minute points. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I do not entirely agree with you. Only on occasion has that been the truth. Don't look at me that way. Okay. So, stop, stop, stop. We are not going to chase this rabbit. I have so much to do today. Okay. So, uh, you've got this, this weird, ancient statue that everyone's been worshiping for generations and now we've got this new Roman facade of the temple around it and all these Romans coming through and they all have to go see this temple because that's the thing that you see when you're in Ephesus. Don't want to leave Ephesus without going by the temple of Diana. So when you do that, the, the locals, of course, want to take advantage of all these people from out of town tromping through with money so they start selling them stuff. And I'm sure it wasn't just what's discussed in scripture. It's housing and food and stuff. It, 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 because it's the temple of Diana, and that's how Romans tended to worship Diana. All their priests were prostitutes. There, that's going on too. So there's this big cat house up there as well. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're buying souvenirs. And so the souvenir among the locals isn't 
oddly enough, you know, a Roman Diana thing, it's a little shrine, which I think probably predates Diana, you know, but it's, it's, they're building these little silver shrines that you set up when you, as a souvenir and you worship Diana when you go home. And they make them out of expensive metal and they sell them rather expensively and it turns into a pretty major, I use the word cottage industry in my notes because there's a lot of people that are involved in producing these shrines that all these pilgrims have to have when they leave the temple. To the point that there are multiple guilds of craftsmen that are working on these various kinds of shrines. We're talking about several hundred people actively producing product, okay? In addition, we've got that big racetrack that Rome built, and we've got three massive gyms. You know, these are like civic building gyms. Uh, there's, there's sports is taking place in this town, and they're having organized events that's bringing in people from outside of town too, and that's also feeding the trade. And all those people come in for the sporting events and they run by the, by the temple and they pick up their, their, their little sil silver knickknack and then, and then you've done Ephesus. Oh wait, there's one more industry that I forgot to mention. This is a very- The altars. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> farming? Uh, anyway, uh, they, it wasn't really a temple to Artemis. It, it, it was to the mother goddess. And there were a lot of occult practices that were associated, I'm assuming, with the mother goddess before it got translated to Artemis and then got translated to Diana. And all of those occult practices were still associated with the temple. So there were people who were not priests who were casting spells and using occult practices to make things happen. And people would come as pilgrims to consult with the occult mystics and see if they can either tell their future or manipulate their future or cure their disease or, strangely enough, have a demon cast out of you. And they did this a lot. And so a, a, a uh, practitioner of Artemis would uh, cast the demons out and evidently it was effective. So if you had a demon and, or someone in your family had a demon, you take them to Ephesus to have it removed. Well, pausing for effect, I guess. That or I just lost my train of thought. One or the other. <laughs> Didn't they also use the amphitheater to put prisoners in so they beat each other to death? The sport? Uh, I'm, I'm sure. You know what? That, that's a Roman thing. Yeah. yeah. And they could have also used the stadium, the racetrack. Was kind of awesome for that, you know. But uh, basically, Romans had uh, something like the Colosseum in Rome. Yeah which was really elaborate, had multiple layers in the floor so that we could bring people up. It was a stage, and, but it was about fighting in animals. They didn't really race because it wasn't big. But the other kind of stadium is a racetrack with this huge uh, set of uh, seats going around the whole thing. But you could do the same kind of fights on the racetrack. It's just really broader. You know, depends on how much land you have to work with. 
Because they used to take Yes, and uh, the stadium in Constantinople. And, you know, there, there are a lot of really famous big Roman. The Romans loved a horse race. You just, you know, they just didn't do it in Rome because they didn't have no room. I knew that, you know, I've seen movies where they actually take the prisoners out there, put them in those amphitheaters, turn their lion loose. Yeah, yeah. And see who's going to eat, you yeah. know, watch the lion tear the man apart, you know, and everything else, you know. Or they put two men out there to, to kill each other, or they, you know, put two women out there to kill each other. Which brings us to, let's see, do I have a question about yep. Paul that I want to ask? Okay. Okay, you remember when Ananias was told to go and pray for his eyesight, and Jesus said he's going to suffer many things for me. Was God predestinating him to, be a, to suffer? I mean, he, you, know, you see what I'm saying? Was God saying, it's kind of like he did all this to the Christians, now he's going to have to suffer for it? This again. Well, I don't know about this again, but uh, I just, it's just a question that was on my mind. Okay, I'm going to cover this really, really fast, and then we're going to move on, okay? Okay, all right. Man has free will, okay, so uh, according to Augustus. So we, uh, the, 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 yeah, never mind. And so uh, he, you can do whatever you want to do. And so you're not predestined to do anything because you get to make your own decisions, right? Yes, but he was kind of uh, God lives outside of time. God is not looking. God isn't going one moment to the next like we are. He's looking at all those moments all at once because he's not dimensional, okay? So at the same to God, this moment is happening. Christ is dying on the cross. Christ is coming at the last days. Christ is walking in the garden with Adam, all at this moment in he's front your, of God. He's at your birth and death at the same when time. When God created creation, he created all of it, including the end of time, all at the same time, because he's outside of time. Time is just one of the dimensions of creation. All of this is done. You're still making your own decisions. But he already knows the end of the story because he's already read the book. Does that make sense? Every once in a while in Scripture, God will slip up and he'll tell you what's happening in the next chapter that you haven't gotten to. That's all it is. That's not predestination. Divine intervention. That's. If you try to think about too much, you'll break your brain. Whoa, God slipped up. <laughs> okay, that's probably the wrong choice of words. I agree with that. Sorry. I, 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 he slipped in. Do you ever wish you could go back and just edit what comes out of your mouth? Because I, I discovered it's really nice when I edit what I write because I never liked what I wrote the first time. He didn't slip up. He slipped in. Yeah, sure. Well, wow. you know, you know that, that 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 can be taken the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we see the we see the point that he told him that he was going to suffer, and then we see that he actually suffered. Yeah. Yes, more so I'm than more, he really suffered more so than any other apostle. The other apostles make the day And and with that, let's begin chapter nineteen. Uh, I've got two sections, at least my, you know, perfectly appropriate Bible divides it into two sections. So I'm going to read down to verse 22, which is a big chunk, and then we will uh, back up and uh, take it apart and see what, if it goes somewhere different. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. <clears throat> he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came in them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. I so wanted to make something out of that number, and I could not find anything other than the obvious possible symbolism. Uh, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. And he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. Two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul even that, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of Jesus Christ, over uh, Lord Jesus, over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. They were going to the gym. <laughs> See, I've been, I've been writing this scene in the screenplay in my head for a while, and it could go so many different ways, depending on how dark you want to write it. Yeah. 17, when this became known to the Jews, and this had an impact, but this changed the city, this incident. Uh, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Oh my goodness, they're burning books. They're burning books, Jack. Are you ready for the next sentence? This makes me even more interested. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all of this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy with Erasmus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Okay. There is so much to unpack here. Uh, Apollos was the guy over in Corinth that took over for Paul's church 
and Paul is making his second round. And to get, and he, he traveled overland from Antioch where he lived to Ephesus. And to do that, you're going to have to cover a whole lot of land in, 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 in Turkey, basically. And he hits, you go through a lot of towns where we already have established Christian uh, uh, communities. And we have to assume that he visited those towns as he passed through, did not spend a lot of time, but visited with his churches and he has friends all the way along the way until he gets to, to Ephesus. And uh, when he, as he's going, he meets people who are followers of John the Baptist. And these are probably people that traveled through Jerusalem when John the Baptist was preaching and they repented and uh, 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 were following him and were, were, were kind of worshiping, they were following John the Baptist's teachings. And when, when Paul gets to them, they haven't heard about Jesus Christ. And so just like when Christ was preaching to the followers of John the Baptist, Paul is basically doing the same thing. It's just the next generation down who've gotten lost over here in Asia. You know, my Bible says it could have been some of the followers of John the Baptist went out pretty much like the disciples of Christ and preached the message of John. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he teaches Christ and explains to him that Christ is the Messiah that, that, that John was, was talking about and, and substantiates that. They accept Christ as their Savior, and they are baptized in the Spirit, and they're all speaking in tongues. And I think it's really interesting. We have a core of 12 men that we can leave as a church, and they're just, you know, something about the number 12. So Paul goes to the synagogue in Ephesus. Yes? I'm sorry. Hi, come in. Uh, Ron, let him have that chair right there, please. I think that's the, do we have another one? Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you, sir. We are in Acts 19. So uh, Paul enters the synagogue, which has been his thing, because he's always brings the message to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And uh, he's there for... Three months. <laughs> teaching. Teaching Christ. Now, are these, you know, eventually they, they, get, they get upset with him and then they kick him out. But it took them three months to do that. I don't think this is saying any, much so much about Paul as it's saying about the church in Ephesus. They're, they're listening. He's making conversions. He's, he's making headway. People are following Paul. He's, after three months, just looking at everything else that Paul has done in his other three two journeys, uh, he's got something going in three months. And three months later, the Jews in the temple start to get a little irritated with Paul. I wonder why that is. They probably, probably they didn't start until somebody, a troublemaker, came in. A troublemaker decided to go in and stir up a little bit, you know. I think if I were the local rabbi, I would let this guy teach because I'm living in the middle of Ephesus, which is nothing but pagan beliefs and all kinds of everything. They're used to every weirdo in the world coming into Ephesus. And so here we, so, so he's tolerant of this until we have such a group of people that it starts to pitch his pocketbook. pocketbook. And he doesn't say this in scripture, but I think he was losing followers. And that's when they get all fussy. 
and they and they start challenging him and when he challenges he 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 leaves which is what he's done in previous uh, uh, occasions and what, yes. I, what I'm surprised about because it happened in other places but it doesn't say anything about these people making these idols and him causing them to lose money you remember in some of the places he went that got him in trouble because he would start uh, dipping Bill, in. Bill, did you not read chapter 19? He'd start dipping into his business. Did you, did you read the second half of the chapter? That's all the second chapter deals with. It's all about money. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I said to myself as I was studying this, the only real idol out there in the world that challenges God is cash. And I think that's been true for a very long time. The love of money is the root of all evil. Yes. They may say they're worshiping Artemis, but these craftsmen did not get upset when he started preaching Christ. They got upset when people stopped buying their stuff. And when the money gets tight, that's when the, the tough get going. You, you know? Can we say that about certain Christian ministries? Yes. In fact, I, I, I think it's still true. I think the real idol of America is capitalism. How much do you, you know? Think, how much do you think 50,000 uh, 50, pieces of silver, what do you think that would total? Well, funny that you should ask that, Bill, uh, because I calculated it. I thought you probably would. Um, okay, let, let's let's get down there. Uh, Paul uh, leaves the uh, uh, synagogue and he moves into a school, a lecture hall, run by a man named, laughably, Tyrannus. Tyrannus simply means tyrant. Tyrannosaurus. Well, no, it doesn't mean dinosaur. <laughs> They named the dinosaur that because it was so big and angry. Yeah, so, so it's tyrant. Now, what mother names their baby in the crib, little tyrant? No, no, no. His given name was Billy or something. It, it, who, where do you think he got the name Tyrannus? It was from his sophomores. His sophomores named him Tyrannus. I, when I write this screenplay, I'm going to make sure that goes in there. He is, he is the obnoxious teacher. He's classic. And uh, so Paul, being Paul, has made friends with the obnoxious teacher in town, who's a Greek. And he's uh, teaching probably Greek philosophy along with basic reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, because you got to do that in order to get to the philosophy. Uh, so there is a tradition in most of the Mediterranean at the time, and I think to a degree still, that when it gets super hot, take a break and come back when it's a little cooler. So they would get up early in the morning and work until noon when it reaches its hottest uh, time of the day. And then they would take a break and uh, have a big lunch, usually. And then they nap for three hours. And then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they go back to work. And then they sometimes put in another six hours of labor well past dark into the evening when it's cool because they've had that nice big long nap in the middle of the day. That way, they literally get more work done by managing their day better and not working in the bitter heat when it's really difficult to keep on going, 
you know, you have more energy. Um, yes, in fact, the Spanish siesta is a direct descendant of this particular uh, tradition. It's not energy. When you go to Europe, it's at the lunch hour, can go and get a couple hours. And every, it's, a, it's a social thing. Yeah. It's a time of rest. And the modern world has kind of taken a little bit away from the whole siesta idea. But uh, it's still there in a lot of cultures, and particularly in the Mediterranean area. And uh, even in Texas, it, when I lived in Brownsville many, many years ago, uh, things kind of shut down in the middle of the day. There were store, mom and pops, not big boxes, but mom and pops would close down at noon and maybe not open again. There were, there were morning stores. And then there was this nightlife that blew me away. I would get off the late shift. I would lock up my store at about midnight and I would go to the grocery store and it would be packed to the point that I'd have to go out to the ditch to find a cart so that I could put my groceries in it. I literally drug my cart out of the ditch into the grocery store so that I could find one. There were so many people at the grocery store. And I, I, did I say midnight? It was 10 o'clock. That's when we closed. So it was 10 o'clock at night. And uh, there, there's this kind of a, a, you know, the whole idea of a, of a, a promenade. When we get the word prom, people get dressed up and they walk around in the evening so that people can see them. And, that, and it's, 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 it's the sun goes down just, just at, at dusk, and uh, that way it's cool, and you get all cleaned up, and that's when you go courting, and you go walking around the, the street, and you uh, let, let the, let the good-looking people see you, and uh, you take care of some business. The stores are open. You know, that's where all this social... They did that great Yeah. Italy had it. Yeah. And so there's a whole culture built around this siesta thing, and that's because they break up their day differently than we do, you know. And after you work 12 hours, uh, I, I, you know, at 10 o'clock, I wanted to get my groceries and go to bed. I was done. You know, I, I didn't have time for wandering around looking at people. You were ready to get back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sick in the mud. I was, I was, I was the stereotypical white dude in Brownsville. It was, you know, I was everything that they despised about me. But anyway, uh, so Tyrannus was shutting down his school at noon, and he was probably opening his school for the evening classes, which had a different group of people in it, at four, and he it was empty during siesta, during this hot period of the day. So Paul had a chat with Tyrannus and said, you know, since your school is empty, you know, how about for a minimal compensation, perhaps uh, I could use it for those four hours. And he goes, sure, whatever. So Paul uh, basically buys him a venue and he starts teaching in Tyrannus's school every day for four hours in between classes. And I assume this was fairly close to the synagogue if he was, you know, if he was lucky. And as a result, what he was teaching in the synagogue continues, and he does this in, in Tyrannus' school for two years. He doesn't travel anywhere. 
He doesn't go from city to city. He's sitting in the middle of Ephesus teaching hard, I assume with an audience for two years, because you've got to have the audience in order to have the class. You know, I, I, when it comes to me, if I'm having a class and I'm dependent upon the class, the class is over when my students finally leave and I've got nobody else in the room. I'm not teaching anything if nobody else is in the room, right? They're still coming. So he's got a functioning class for two years as he's teaching Christ and they are uh, being, being, being saved and baptized in the Spirit and they are all going on to other places. Paul doesn't need to travel all over Asia Minor. He needs to get to the heart of Asia Minor where this was, and he needs to preach Christ, and then those people need to go out to everywhere else in Asia Minor. So Luke says, This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, which is modern Turkey, Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord. This is a major outpouring of uh, the, the spirit upon Asia Minor. Probably more people were reached by him staying in Ephesus than it'd be a travel. Yes. And Paul is not irritating Jewish uh, 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 rabbis. He's not irritating, he's not going to the Colosseum. He is not preaching down to the Greeks. He is tucked away in a school where people come to him voluntarily. He's not competing with anybody, and it's been consistent and regular for two years, and he is churning out missionaries. And as this is happening, God is moving in Ephesus. And <clears throat> I apologize for this. Weird stuff is happening. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And I love that Luke words it that way. Paul isn't doing miracles. Paul is just being obedient and preaching Christ. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. Now, who would do that? And their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Remember how, how spooky this town is. The occult is everywhere. There are all of these little occult practices. They're all in the spells. And, and having somebody bring in a magical cloth to put in your head would not be an unusual thing in Ephesus. And I'm sad to say it's not that unusual in Christendom either. It's, it's a big scam. So if somebody says I'm going to give you, you know, this uh, handkerchief that has my hand drawn on it because I touched it and prayed, and all you have to do is give this uh, a donation of seed faith in order to receive my, yeah, exactly. I, I, I think the instant that you hear that word seed faith offering, you can turn channels. I, I think what you meant is that Luke goes to the, to the extent of saying God was performing the miracle. I've gotten the letters in, in the mail and everything where the people said, this is my shirt. And yep. people heal it. It, it takes, one, the focus off of God on to the evangelist, minister, whatever you're saying. And he does want a seed offering for it to work. Right. Which is the worship of money. Uh-huh. Um, Paul, Paul this kind of goes back to the same thing as a woman with the issue of blood. 
she knew that if she could just touch the hem of Christ's garment, she'd be healed. So it kind of goes back to the same thing. I, I think God works any way he wants to work. Yeah. And, and this was, and I also think God works in a way that makes sense to the people that he's trying to reach. And I don't know that this particular practice is going to work anywhere else other than Ephesus, because it made sense in Ephesus. And, and, and by the way, when we say handkerchief, you think of this really neat piece of white linen that is folded up and it goes into the pocket of your jacket on your suit with a little corner popped out like that. Or if you're really classy, you go flat. Anyway. Uh, uh, that's not what this is. This is how the King Jimmy uh, translated it. And basically, a better translation would be headband. It's the cloth that you put on your head while you're working to soak up your sweat. And we assume that Paul is uh, making tents. Yeah, it's, it's a sweat, it's a sweatband. It's, it's his work clothes. And so people literally took Paul's work clothes, I'm assuming without his knowledge, and then they took it to somebody else and said, here's the sweat of the teacher from Tyrannus's school. Let's put this on your head. And they did, and oh my goodness, it worked. And demons left them, and people were cured. So it wasn't a handkerchief like this? No, it wasn't a handkerchief like that. That's much too neat. Uh, this is somebody's sweat they're sticking on your head. And the apron, that's a leather apron. This is a work item that clean people in school and church don't want to touch, certainly don't want to touch mine, you know, because it's covered in, in, in sawdust and goo and, and, and glue, you know? Do preachers still sweat? What? Do preachers still sweat now? No, not usually. Anyway, uh, that's why they have... Wives. Anyway, what? What? I know. I know. He sees through my sarcasm. Right. Right. He does. And and we're also, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is moving through this town, and this is having an effect. And I, I'm just getting to the good part, and we're not even. We're out of time. They're gonna go sweat. Okay, I'm going to zip through this in six minutes and not do it justice at all. So, there was a Jewish uh, high priest. He's called a high priest, but I've never heard him referenced anywhere else. He may have just said he was a high priest. And he had seven sons, which is one big family, by the way. And they are all casting out demons as a business. So people come in, and one of the seven sons of Sceva will come out and cast your demon out for you for a fee. And so, you know, they've got a sign up, demons cast out here, and they have a door, and there's a fee posted to the door, and if you can cover them, then you're good. So they're doing this regularly, and they notice that the followers of Paul are also casting out demons and cutting into their business, and they're using this spell, because that's how they saw it, as in the name of Jesus, and when they cast out the demon, it worked really well. Because I'm betting half the time that they got paid, they weren't really casting out demons. They were putting on a show. Never I'm not even going to go there. Not even going to go there. 
So, uh, the, so, so the sons of Sceva see these things happening on the street, and it's better than what's going on in their parlor. So, when you're being beaten by the competition, you join the competition. They just listened very carefully to how they were doing their spell, and they ripped off the other spell. They ripped off the competition. So they said, in the name of Jesus, I cast you out. And then something very strange happened. The demon turned around and talked to them directly, which has never happened before. Often, he'll just literally jump out, or they put on a big show. But this time, the demon bites back. Because is it the words in the name of Jesus that makes the demon go? No, it's Jesus existing in you as the Holy Spirit. You're basically saying in the name of Jesus, oh, by the way, here he is. He's right here because I'm a believer. Jesus is standing before you. Leave. And a demon is not going to argue with God. Now, here we have a guy who doesn't have Jesus in his heart, who's going in the name of Jesus, and the demon goes, well, well, well. You're baiting me. No power here. No power here. And the demon bites back. And when he does, it's ugly. And we have several people that are casting out. One man over towers them and they leave beaten bloody and naked and publicly and suddenly there is fear gripping Ephesus because these people are all working the same scam and now they don't know what's happening and they go the name of Jesus becomes a lot of chatter there's gossip all over the place and then people start repenting and we have all these occult people that have these occult books and they have a literally a come to Jesus meeting all on their own and they have a book burning I'm assuming in the theater and they pile up all of these, these spell books and burn them in the name of Jesus and this is without Paul being there this is, this is happening all on them. It is about fear. It is not about repentance and conversion. A holy fear. And I think, this is my theory, God was behind that demon. Yes. God was making a move here. I have a question. Well, okay. Has anybody in here actually ever seen a demon cast out? What happened, really? They were set free. Uh, to the extent where they go 180 and receive Jesus, they can even be killed in the Holy Spirit immediately thereafter. Was that in Africa? And I went a long way to answer your question, Bill. They had this book burning, and Luke, because he's a detail man, and because he recognizes the quality of a good book, he values the pile of books at 138 years worth of a working man's wages, which is what a drachma comes to. And based on my modern calculations, I came to $4,140,000 worth of books in our modern evaluation. My study notes here says the high price was not due to the quality of the books, but to the 
I will take it to another degree. Value is based on supply and demand, and it was this high because there was that much demand for spells in Ephesus. This was huge in Ephesus. It's a money maker, and these spells, you have to say they worked, Yek, because I think I think the devil will cast its own demons out if it's in its own best interest. Sure. And so he's counterfeiting miracles to give all of these occultists credit so that he can build his antichrist That's church. That's why I say I think God was behind that one demon turning on those guys because God was going to do an illustrated sermon. Yeah. Of said, I'll show you who really has his power here. And I can just see that demon getting to hell and getting beaten up for blowing their good deal. You know what I'm saying? That's how Lewis would write it if yeah, he were yeah. right. Yeah, do I, yeah, he knows what I'm talking but about. This, this, okay. this was God <laughs> establishing he is above all. Yes. So, so they have this burning out of fear, and Paul is still quietly teaching in his little uh, 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 school. He, he, he has nothing to do with any of this. And as this city converts to Christianity painfully, but it goes back to what she said. This was not about the preacher. This was no. about the spirit of God moving. This was, this was just, like you said, people doing it themselves. How powerful the Holy Spirit is. Yeah. Okay, the next section, which is from 23 on, is the ramifications of all of this. And, uh, and yes, it's all about cash and craftsmen and idols. And we will study that. But basically, the craftsmen who are losing money at this point get really upset because all these conversions are cutting into their pocketbook and they're not selling their idols anymore. And, uh, you know, the prostitutes up on the hill aren't getting paid anymore. All, all of the enemy are, getting, are, are being starved out. The cat house is shutting down. Yes, and we can't have that, can we? So, well, they're uh, not getting shut down. There's enough customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're priestesses after all. Anyway... Uh, and so we have what in, in, in my Bible is called a riot. I would call it more of a political protest considering how it goes down. But uh, there is a big, eventually the Christians get shut down in Ephesus, and we will discuss that next time. I don't want to teach it now. I'll you know, I, I was watching a deal about Old Western. They said every Old Western town they built, they had to have a, a, a cat house. Well, they didn't call it a cat. It was the Wild West, Bill. They called it, they called it a different name. I don't know what Yeah, it yeah. But have you ever seen a demon cast out? That's what I would She, He just answered you. Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. We, we may or may not be here next week. We don't know. What? We're, 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 we're planning a weekend trip. We don't know what we're going to do next week. Okay. I thought you might be uh, if there's anybody out in internet land listening, I'm signing off now. Goodbye. But we might.